And we'll go to Exodus chapter 25, verse number 17 for, for tonight. Yeah, we've, we're looking at the, the uh, place called the Holy of Holies, that inner uh, sanctuary inside of the tabernacle, the place that only the priests would go, the high priests would go one time a year uh, with blood. There's one more we need on this side there, Roger, over this side. Roger, if we can get one more over here. Anybody else? Lift your hand real high so we can see it. All right. Okay. All right. And so, yeah, the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies is basically the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant is not just the Ark. On top of that covenant, there's a lid. And that lid is important. It's called the Mercy Seat. And we're going to look at that in number two. It's the second piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. And in verse 17, it says, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubs, cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall tre- stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, ab- above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all the things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. All right. And we see in Exodus 40, verse 20, he says, He took and he put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark. And this is when he set it up, so he had the instruction. But when you go to chapter 40, this is where they actually set it into place. And it says, And he set the staves on the ark, those are the the poles that they used to carry it, and put the mercy seat above the ark. All right, letter A, we're going to look at the mercy seat's message. The message. And the message is, Christ is our propitiation. And we see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And um, in the first John chapter 2, verse number 2, you see this word again. It says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. The Greek word for propitiation is the same word found for mercy seat. So that's an interesting thing in the New Testament. If you were to look at the Greek words behind those particular words, uh, propitiation and mercy seat, it's the same Greek word. I didn't give it to you here because you wouldn't care anyways, you know. But it's interesting because they, they both talk about the same thing. The mercy seat is the place that God meets his justice upon uh, sin. And that's why the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Jesus Christ has become our propitiation. So he's the one that takes the brunt of it, or not just the brunt of it, but all of it for us. Amen. 
And so letter B, the mercy seat's material, pure gold revealing the truth that Jesus Christ, who is God, became our atonement. And uh, in 1 John 4.10, it says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is the big thing here, that Jesus didn't, wasn't just born. He didn't start in Mary's uh, womb. He was existing before, amen? He came from heaven and came down to the earth. And then he was born uh, as a man. And you know, that is an important thing to discover when you talk to people. You know, you can probably discern most false religions if you just get into that particular doctrine right there and find out what they believe about God becoming flesh. You will probably really weed out all of the cults. Uh, you will definitely weed out Islam greatly because they don't believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They believe that he started here on earth. I, I talked to one guy once. He said, oh, yeah, we believe that, that Jesus died and ro uh, was buried and rose again. I says, oh, really? He says, oh, yeah, just like you. He's trying to make a commonality between Christianity and Islam. And I said, oh, isn't that interesting? He says, yeah, we also believe that he's going to return again. I said, well, that's interesting, but I'll tell you exactly where me and you don't agree, that Jesus Christ is God. And he, oh, no, no, no. And I says, well, that's enough. <laughs> you know, There's no commonality between their message and our message. They can take all of those doctrines that he died and he was buried and he rose again and he went to heaven, ascended and came back and returned. It means nothing if Jesus Christ wasn't God. Who redeemed you? Who was that person? Was that a man? So a man redeems you? Only a man? A man bought you? Well, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that, the, that God hath redeemed us. God hath redeemed us. So God himself shed his blood for us. Amen. So who purchased you, an angel? Some people would believe that an angel, you know, that, that Jesus Christ is a reincarnation of Michael the archangel. And when he, died, when he went back into heaven, he went back to being Michael the archangel. That's Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine. So they talk about Jesus dying and buried and rose again. And everybody says, oh, you're just like us. No, they're not, because you have to deal with the origin. You have to deal with where he came from and what, who is he and what did he come to do? Amen. If he was an angel before he came here, so did an angel buy you? Who owns you anyways? Who redeemed you? Who purchased you with his blood? Was that God or an angel or a man? Amen. Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That means God hath redeemed us. God shed his blood for us. Amen. That's a completely different thing than an angel or a man dying for you. And so it means nothing otherwise. You know, they can have everything else common as far as they see it. But if they don't agree that Jesus Christ is God, they are just as bad as any other complete <clears throat> aberrant uh, cult out there. Amen? And so let's not fall for that. Psalm 49, verse 12. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their saying, Selah. Like sheep, they, they are laid in the grave. <coughs> Death shall feed on them. And the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Amen. And so that's wonderful. Otherwise, all we would be is just a pile of dust with uh, you know, worms walking, you know, crawling through it. And yet the Lord will redeem us. Let her see. The mercy seat's measurement 
the thickness of the mercy seat is not mentioned. So no, no description of the, uh, of the thickness. How thick should I make this thing? I guess he just kind of left it up to them as they, you know, put it together. But what does this mean? The thickness of the mercy seat is not mentioned, illustrating how God's mercy has no limits in Christ. He was very careful not to put limits on that mercy. Amen. How deep his mercy goes. The depth of that lid is not mentioned as far as the, the, uh, uh, the measurement thereof. And so thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length, and a cubit and a half the breadth. And remember the half, like we looked at last week, is because Christ is not yet fully known by us. He's only partially known. And he's not known in his fullness. Yet uh, we will know him. In Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't think we understand how the greatness of his mercy is following us every day of our life. We don't understand that. But, you know, that's, but that's a part of the, the depth, you know. Uh, we wake up in the morning and think God has forsaken us. I'm sorry, there is no depth to his mercy. He continues on and on and on and on, amen. Uh, his mercies, the Bible says, are new every morning, amen, every morning. Uh, remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Uh, Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. In Psalm 103, 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. Uh, Psalm 107, 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That's why there's no limit to that lid. Amen? Great mercy. Letter D. The mercy seat's guardians, the cherubim, are living beings that are guardians of God's presence. And of course, you see a lot of that in the book of Ezekiel. Um, you see that in chapter 10, 1 to 22. I don't know if I want to read all of that. <laughs> you read that, amen. But it talks about the cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And you know, the, all, everything we see, I, I've never seen uh, a, a picture of the Ark of the Covenant where two are exactly alike. Everybody's got their own rendition of what that means, how the wings touch. And I, I had one guy just recently, I, I uh, listened to him on a video, and he, he, he said that the two wings in the back touched each other, and the other two wings went down actually to make a throne to sit on. And I thought that was an interesting concept for the throne of God. And, it, well, whatever. Uh, it doesn't really matter because otherwise the Lord would have said it. Amen? But uh, you just don't know. Uh, what this exactly looks out like. that's that's why if you pick a picture of uh, of uh, ark of the covenant online you'll never find the same one twice amen and i know that because i've been looking for years all right genesis three twenty four. so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life so they are the guardians of life they are the guardians of god all right, um, let's move on. Letter E, the mercy seat's meeting. The mercy seat was the place God would commune with men, stating that it's only through God's mercy, through Christ, we can have a relationship with God. That is the message of the mercy seat. In verse 22, it says, And there I will meet with thee, 
and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. And so there we see it. We see the throne. And so it's, I don't think it's too far off with the wings, you know, forming a throne on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But our, uh, Hebrews 4, ver, 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find help or find grace to help in a time of need. So it's a throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. So that's a picture of the mercy seat as well. That's what it's picturing to us. Um, Titus 3.5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's amazing how people, they want to take away that mercy. They just don't want it to be all mercy. They say, well, God's got, I, surely I need to do something to deserve this salvation or to be redeemed. And God says, no, it's, it's all mercy. And that's what it says here. It says, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, not by works of righteousness which we have done. But we always want to give a work. We want to do something right. We want to say, hey, I've done something right and I deserve to go to heaven. Well, you don't. If you deserved it, then you wouldn't need mercy. Amen? Mercy is only required when there's something that you know you can't get. <laughs> then you receive mercy. So you're in the court, of, the court of law. The judge says you're guilty. You're condemned to death. All you can do is throw yourself down and on the mercy of the court. That's all you got left. No righteousness, no right thing, nothing that you can do. No smooth talking, no good you know, work or this, that, or the other. It's completely the mercy of God. Amen? That is your salvation. Completely. Completely. And that is a wonderful thing. I hope you like that. Do you? Amen? Are you guys sleeping okay? Okay, all right. For Psalm 5, verse 7, it says, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Psalm 13, verse 5, But I've trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. So you talk about trusting Christ. What does that mean to trust Christ? That means you're trusting his mercy to save you. The moment you put one little work in there, one little thing, even, even just one, the smallest, minutest thing, you are now not trusting in the mercy of God. Amen? It's either all mercy or it's no mercy. It's either all you or it's all Christ. That's, that's the only thing. Amen? 1 Peter 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is completely the mercy of God. All right, we're going to move to our next uh, piece of furniture or our next item here. Number three, we're going to look at the veil. Now the veil, uh, that is something you would see from the holy place as well. You would see the other side of that veil. Uh, most of the priests would just see the inside of that veil from the, ho from the, from the holy place. But on the inside, you would also see it from the Holy of Holies. Amen. It's a divider. And so in Exodus 26, verse 31, it says, And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work with cherubims shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold, 
Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And so you see a detail here in verse chapter 36. It says that he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen with cherubims made he of it cunning work. And he made therefore pillars, uh, four pillars, and on and on it goes and gives you that detail again. And so chapter 40, it talks about how he brought the ark into the tabernacle. He says, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. So veil, what does that mean? Any kind of cloth which is used for intercepting the view and hiding something. So a veil is meant to hide. So when a person gets married, ladies, you wear a veil. What you're trying to do is hide your face. See, that's why many times they say you can't see the bride before the wedding and so forth. You hide her. Amen. Uh, we Many times we, we have the, the setup for the, uh, the wedding and, okay, where, where's the bride going to be? You can't be waiting with a man out there. You got to be hiding. So they're outside in the car or they're somewhere and you got to make it so they come in and the guys don't see them before they walk up. And many times they take it further where they actually put the veil over the face. And we know that's also Moses put a veil over his face to hide the glory of God. Amen. And we see that when he saw the glory of God on, on the mountain. And that was a veil. It was hiding something. So letter A, the veil's refinement. It was a cunning needlework of fine, on fine linen representing God's intricate care in our redemption. Um, these are... There are 24 times these colors are mentioned in Exodus. Blue is always mentioned first. That's interesting. Blue is always first. Well, why is that? Because blue is a picture of Christ's deity. That is vital. That is number one. Amen? So we're always talking about Christ being God. Scarlet is a picture of Christ's sacrifice for sin. And number three, uh, purple is Christ's royalty. And so, like I said last time, when you mix blue and scarlet, you get purple, right? So what made him a king is that he uh, came from heaven and he shed his blood for mankind. And that qualifies him as our king. Did you have anything else under your point there? No? Okay. Letter B. The veil's record, four pillars represents man's testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's see if I got this right. Somehow I think I'm missing something. No, actually I'm not. The pillars represent believers, represent the, well, I'll read this here in Revelation 3.12. It says, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And so we're supposed to be pillars. That's what God says we are. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar. Uh, we also see uh, scripture that talks about the leaders of the church and those apostles. They were seen as pillars in the church. Well, what's a pillar? I mean, it just stands there. You know, what's so great about a pillar? 
It's not what the pillar is, it's what it's holding up. It's the message. It's the message that the pillar is holding up. What they would do is uh, they would uh, they would take, uh, in the olden days, they would go to the square and they would take the king's proclamation and nail it to a pillar. And that pillar would hold up the king's message. That's what we are. That's what we're supposed to be. And so how does that connect here with this uh, veil? Well, number two, the veil hung upon the four pillars representing how the four gospel accounts reveal different aspects of Christ. So there's four different uh, testimonies that man gave about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we're trying to see here. Uh, I don't know why I have these. Yeah, let's look at this. Ezekiel 1, verse 4, it says, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof is a color amber out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst there came the, living, the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they had four, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every, every one straight forward. And as for likeness of their faces, they had four on the face of man and the face of a lion. And on the right side, they had four on the face of an oxen. And on the left, they, they four also had the face of an eagle. And so there's four different faces that were seen on these cherubim as well. And in Revelation 4, 6, it says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind, and the first beast was like a lion, second beast was like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And so here you have these four representations we see in the Old Testament, and all the way through, right to the end in the book of Revelation. And they're representing four different things. And what we're doing is, letter A, Matthew, it represents Jesus Christ as a king, and that is the lion. All right? The lion. He is the, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the leader. All right? And letter B, Mark is a servant, and that's always pictured by an ox. So you have that pillar that's holding up that message of, of the colors, the, 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 the origin of Christ, his deity, his redemption, his atonement, and then, of course, how he is the king of kings. And those are the things that we as believers hold up, and they're represented by these four gospels. And Luke is a son of man, and so that is a man. And we see that also in this, revealed in this passage. And then letter D is John, the gospel of John. It's the Son of God, and that's an eagle talking about being in heaven, amen, in the blue sky. All right, so those four pillars, those four testimonies. And so that's what we know that those four things represent in the Holy of Holies. Uh, number three, the pillars were set in silver sockets representing the redeemed of the Lord. Now, where do we get silver from? What is, what's so important about silver? Well, remember Judas purchased or betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of what? Silver. And so the sockets were in silver in these pillars. 
Amen? And so it talks about, the, about how Jesus Christ gave his life and how we betrayed him and so forth, and yet he redeemed us from our sin. Letter C, the veil's requirement, the separation between God and man made by sin. And I'm sorry for going so fast. I'm just trying to, I don't want to keep you here for an hour tonight. I want to get you home. You've got to pray yet and so forth. But, so it's a little more teachy feeling tonight, all right? Letter C, the, the veil's requirement, the separation between God and man made by sin. So this is it. Why did God put that veil there in the first place? Because we're separated from God. In Isaiah 59, 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And that's why it was made such a separate place. There's no way that any man could go behind that veil. The only one that could was the high priest, and the high priest is who? A type of Jesus Christ. He is the only one that could cross over into that, into that holy of holies or into the most holy. The rest of us have to stay on this side of the veil. And so it was a separation because of our sin. Hebrews 9 verse 6, it says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. That's us. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Of course, Jesus didn't need to offer it for himself. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle, tabernacle was yet standing. So when they made that tabernacle, they didn't understand what Jesus Christ was going to do. They didn't understand what that all meant. All they knew was they were given a pattern and this is what you're supposed to do. They didn't understand it all. They didn't know why just the high priest could go behind there. They didn't know why if the high priest wasn't right with God that he would die and they'd have to pull him out with a piece of rope. You know, they didn't understand that holiness. But later on when Jesus Christ is revealed, now we understand. Now we look back and say, I understand why this all happened. I understand why Jesus Christ is the only one that, that could go into that place. So letter D, the veil revealed. The body of Jesus Christ hung between God and man. This is important. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is the importance of God becoming flesh. That flesh was a veil. What was that veil hiding? What was the flesh of Christ hiding? Well, His divinity. The Bible says there's no beauty that we shall desire of Him. That means if you look at him, you wouldn't say, yeah, I'd like to be your best friend. Or, you know, you're good looking. You know, it, you wouldn't even take notice of him when he walked by. Unless you saw him do something or say something, that would captivate you. But the Bible says his flesh was normal. It was, it was, it was common. It, it was not uh, something that, oh, wow, look at him, you know. And so that veil, Jesus Christ, who is God, became flesh. And that veil, which is his flesh hid God from us. So what needed to happen? In 1 Timothy 3.16 it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. So it's a controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. 
the mystery, amen? Can you imagine these folks trying to figure this out? Like, what does this all mean? Can you even imagine, like, even the, the disciples themselves trying to put this all together? Like, look at, the, look at the, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was walking right beside them, and they still didn't get it. It was, it was a mystery. Do you understand how, how, how much we have today that we understand than they did, even the Apostle Peter at that time, uh, that, that were hidden from, uh, from them? Yet now it's just blown wide open. <laughs> you know, We look at this stuff like it's just, oh, don't, don't you know this? I mean, this is common knowledge. Moses didn't know that. All those prophets didn't know that. All they knew was what God told them to say. Amen? The disciples didn't know that. <laughs> and so he was wrapped up in this veil, hidden. Uh, his divinity hidden from mankind. And even though the disciples knew that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they surely didn't understand everything about Christ. It was so partial, their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So letter E, the veil rent. It was rent from the top to the bottom when Jesus died on the cross. In Matthew 27, 50, it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Why is it so important that it be from the top to the bottom? Why not from the bottom to the top? I mean, I mean, the purpose is just to rent the veil, right? But we know there's a purpose in this. There's a picture here. There's something the Lord wants us to see. Or it's just practicality, how when the Lord looked down and grabbed the veil, he just did what you would do and start at the top and rip it to the bottom. That just shows you who did it. God himself. If it was man, they would have started at the bottom and go to the top. But God rent from the top to the bottom. Amen. They were saying that veil was so strong that even a locomotive wouldn't have ripped that thing. I don't know if that's true or not. I wasn't there, amen, but I've heard that saying before. So that veil was not just a thin piece. It was actually very much intertwined where it was very strong and yet rent from the top to the bottom. It showed you that there's no way man could have ripped that from the top to the bottom, amen. The veil was rent from above showing us that God made the way open to approach him. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem his, him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I don't have all these verses here. Give me a second. I'm going to turn there. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, of course, Hebrews uh, gives you all kinds of insight into the types of the Old Testament, helps you understand those things. And you see the tabernacle, especially in the book of Hebrews. In verse number 12, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. In Ephesians 2.16, we'll go there. It's not my normal way of doing things. I, I keep things rolling, you know. <laughs> Maybe I need to do more of this. Ephesians 2.16 says, That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So, Christ, he is the veil 
the veil was rent at the very moment that Christ died, the veil was rent. At the very moment that the deity of Christ has now accomplished its purpose in giving us access to himself is the very time where the, the veil that pictured his flesh is being ripped open so you could see behind all of those things that were, have been hidden. The gold, amen, the mercy seat, the propitiation. Those things were never known before Jesus Christ died on the cross. They're revealed to us now. We can, we, we've got systematic theology books. We've got hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pages that have been written just on these aspects of redemption and propitiation and atonement and all these different things. I, I've read so much from different guys and they all have something else to add about all these great things that have been revealed. But you wouldn't have known that if that veil wouldn't have been rent. You know? How would just the typology, how the law was inside that ark and to commune with God, you had to go at the mercy seat with blood. There's no way a man could have approached God without that mercy seat. Imagine taking that lid off the mercy seat. Now I'm going to approach you, God. <laughs> he says, oh, are you going to go through my tables of testimony? Are you going to go through the law? No, you will die. He says, let me put this lid back on. Amen. Only my son has kept the law 100%. Only he has been perfect, amen? And so that law is, uh, is in my heart, Jesus said. And that's what's in that Ark of the Covenant. That's why later on, the Temple of Solomon it no longer had the rod and the manna. And I don't know if that was a problem or if that's an issue, but all I know is it really doesn't matter because even in Hebrews, it, it talks about how that, the table of testimony was placed in there. That was the important thing. How the law was fulfilled in Christ. And now you can approach God through the mercy of God by the blood of Christ. And it's been revealed to you by the rent veil, which is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for you on that cross. Amen? What a wonderful truth that is. The, the veil was rent completely showing us that everything has been done that needs to be done to make a way for man to approach God. Everything. Amen? Uh, these people out there trying to make a way to approach God. I'm sorry. Everyone in this room, isn't it wonderful that wherever you are, whether you're here or whether you go drive down the road, you can approach God wherever you are? But you know, that's kind of, there's kind of a responsibility with that, isn't there? Here I'm looking at my life, oh, I can't do this. No, no, this is terrible. And we're just, we're like this close to the throne of God. We're just right there. We can just talk to him, the one that created everything, and just say, Lord, help me with this. And yet we're, we spend the first four hours complaining about our situation. He said, no, come to me, find help in a time of need. Because that veil's been rent. You have, you have complete access to the throne of God today. Amen? What a wonderful truth.